Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the atoning sacrifice of your son Jesus, the one who has taken away our sins and driven them away as far as the east is from the west from us. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with us now as we study your word, uh, reminding us and reassuring us of your promises and showing us how your son is the true scapegoat, the one who has borne all those sins and taken them away on the cross. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody's got a handout. Got some more up here. And grab your Bibles and open to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16. And so uh, as we're talking about the Day of Atonement, of course, the Hebrew phrase for that is Yom Kippur. You've heard that before? Maybe. Yom Kippur, maybe you've heard that. Um, that's just the phrase meaning Day of Atonement. Still practice, but not in the same way. Um, I didn't uh, spend too much time researching modern Jewish practice with Yom Kippur, but I'm guessing it doesn't involve the goats and the bulls. I don't know that for sure, but I think it probably does not. But I would be interested to know more about how, they, how they're practicing it today. Um, we're really just going to uh, go through, I think, probably the first 10 verses or so, sort of the first section of chapter 16, which is all the preparation for the uh, Day of Atonement itself. And then next week, we'll get into more of the sacrifice and how that's carried out and so forth. Uh, but as we get started, I wanted to draw your attention to this fascinating little data point. Uh, and this is in, within the Hebrew Bible, within the Old Testament. You'll see this more than once, how um, much attention to detail there is with the locations of words and um, discussion sections that are significant. And the Masoretes, the, these were the kind of the Jewish scribes and copyists, the one who uh, hundreds of years later would write all these things down. At the end of each uh, book of the Bible, um, you, they would have notes about how many letters there were and what was, uh, uh, you know, how many, um, well, they wouldn't say how many, how many verses, but um, you know, how many paragraphs even, and make it very specific. They wanted to make sure that nothing was left out, that nothing was compromised. Well, in that vein, I wanted to uh, point this out, which uh, I learned in my study. I say that atonement is at the heart of the Torah. This is true theologically, but this is also true linguistically. Okay, So check this out. First of all, as you know, Leviticus is the center book of the Torah. There's five books in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay? So it's the center book. It's the third of five books. But as we said in our introduction, uh, low many months ago, um, this was uh, the first book that would be learned by young Jewish youth as it would instruct them about the way of their sacrifices and of atonement. But secondly, chapter 16 uh, includes the 19th of 37 speeches in Leviticus. Okay? So Leviticus is constituted of 37 speeches from God. Okay? Once again, they didn't have the chapters as we have it now. The structure of it is really these speeches from God. Thus said the Lord to Moses. And the, what we have here in Leviticus 16 is the 19th of 37. In other words, it's the one smack dab in the middle. Okay? So you've got the middle book. Oh, that's nice. Uh, if you need to move. Sorry, Hans. Uh, and then you have verse 16 is the center of the speech. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions all their sins. So, 
at the very heart of the Torah, you have atonement. And this is certainly true theologically. This is, this is God's heart for his people, for creation, that he would be able to atone, to forgive their sins, to reconcile them to himself, that that relationship would be restored, brought back together at one, as it were. Um, and so I just find that so fascinating how structurally it underscores that key point that at the heart of their faith was atonement. Yeah, let's see. I just wanted to say this morning when you were doing the sermon and you were speaking of the clouds yes. opening yeah, and yeah, the, the dove coming right. down, yeah. right at that point where, where we were sitting in anyway, oh, yeah. the clouds moved and the sun came right yes. through that window. Nice. <laughs> Must have been a sign. That was a sign. Yeah. That's yeah. what I thought. Yes. yes. This is my preacher. Listen to him. Uh, <laughs> You're waiting for the dove to come. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> That's cool, though. And I, you know, the way that our sanctuary is set up, sometimes the light comes right. through there. It's just, it's so beautiful. So thank you for, for sharing that. Yeah, Hans. I was going to say, what came to my mind was the uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And, uh, <laughs> the curtains, <yeah>. Stop reveling! <laughs> Don't you know, Hans, I'm much more reverent than that. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was about swallows anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this also got me thinking about how atonement is so persistently the heart of our, of our faith. But what are some of the other things that people put at the heart of their religion? So um, atonement for the ways that, that many people will practice their faith, Christian or otherwise, I suppose, will put other things there rather than atonement and forgiveness and reconciliation uh, that we have. So when that gets supplanted, what are some of the other things that people, you see people putting there instead, that we all might be tempted to put there instead? Morality. Morality, okay. So at the center of it is just be a good person, right? Or love in any way, shape, or form. Okay, so love more in the loosey-goosey kind of way, yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. Fear. What's that? Fear. Fear, yeah. Or fear is at the heart of it, and fear drives everything else. Sure. Karma. Karma, yeah. I mean, explicitly in the Eastern religions, um, but I would say more in a tacit kind of way for, for many people, where karma has that kind of place. Yeah, Bob? Subtle and uh, maybe treading on some really thin, thin ice. Um, I heard it's only an inch on Lake Arcadia, so. And, and, um, and that is, when we talk about forensic justification, which is true, right. It often almost comes off um, not relationally, sure. but trans transactionally. Yeah, yeah. And that's a danger. Yeah. Atonement is not about transactions. No, that's right. So to have a view of the atonement where it's not just um, it's not just God kind of as the uh, accountant in the sky, kind of clearing the the ledger and seeing whether or not you measure up. It's about a relationship that's reconciled and restored. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say service. Sure. To answer a question, which kind of relates to the yeah. counting with some people. Sure. If I just keep serving. If I just keep serving. And I've, I've known of churches that have, would have this practice. It's well-meaning, but I think it's, it's misguided, where they would say, on Sunday morning, we're not having worship. Instead, it's going to be service day or what have you. And to me, that flows out of a misunderstanding of what, that this isn't about what we're doing for God. It's about what God is doing for us. Mm -hmm. And it's what we receive on Sunday morning that enables us then to go out and, and serve. We get it backwards if we put service at the, at the heart of it. Yeah, Bob? Yeah, well, when you were preaching this morning out of Romans 6, almost paraphrased it, why would you continue to break God's heart since you are his beloved? Sure, yeah. Why, why keep going in that way? You have been 
transferred, brought into the family, why live as though you were still a slave when you've been made a son? Yeah, that's right. So but I think yeah. the, the question would like back to your, your uh, sermon is because some people will make the claim that, that I don't sin any, anymore. Sure, right. You've heard some sort of preachers on TV who say like, I don't, I don't sin anymore because I've been saved. And so right. the sign that you've been saved is you don't sin anymore. Yes, yeah. And that's mm-hmm. not, I didn't hear you say that this morning. Right. No. <laughs> Good. The sign that you've been saved is that you don't sin anymore, but you don't sin anymore because you've been saved? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> no, that's true. And I'm glad that you didn't hear that, because I definitely didn't want to, to say that by any means. Um, but um, what, as those who are baptized, we still have this, you know, si- simultaneously justified and sinful nature both of the now the there's that struggle that wrestling within us but um we, yeah we would say the po- point to our baptism is the fact that we've been saved rather than some kind of internal transformation you know that that's there but it's there in halting and um incomplete ways in in this life so suffice it to say there's all sorts of things that people including christians can put at the heart of their faith but what is meant to be at the heart of it is atonement this reconciliation between God and his creatures, his beloved, whom he has um, called to be his own. And so that's why Leviticus 16 is so significant. Now, it, it can still feel very alienating because, like, whoa, what, is all, what are all these steps? And it, it seems very <clears throat> strange and foreign to us. I think that's okay. Um, but just to see, this is what the beating heart behind all of it is. Even if it seems a little bit weird or far out, this is why God is, is doing it. That atonement is what drives it. All right, so let's talk about the who of it. Actually, I'll go ahead and read these first few verses, and then we'll um, talk, talk more about that. So Leviticus 16, starting with verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. That was Nadab and Abihu, remember that? And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall shave the linen undergarment, shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. All right, so the details are significant here. So first of all, the, this chapter really just focuses on Aaron as the high priest, okay? Now there's some um, ancillary characters, people who are going to help with the, the uh, goats and so forth. But this is basically all about Aaron in his capacity as the high priest. So this is the, the first important thing to notice, especially as we look forward ahead to the New Testament, right? And this fulfillment of this shadow, as it were, that atonement is accomplished by the high priest. And I want to, um, thinking, comparing contrasts a little bit, the work of the high priest versus the work of our greater high priest, Christ Jesus. And to look at that, um, let's go ahead to Hebrews, the great commentary on the book of Leviticus in the New Testament. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. 
Hebrews 9, verses 6 through 14. So is Hebrews really a commentary on well, it's not specifically, no, not technically a commentary. I mean, it, was, it was probably a sermon is what it looks like. Um, but much of it functions as essentially commentary on, Le, on Leviticus. So I've thought about maybe after we're done with Leviticus doing Hebrews next because there's just so much um, that connects the two of them. But here, this section on the, the high priest in uh, Hebrews 9, starting with verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, went through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All right, there's a whole lot there just in these few verses from Hebrews. But let's uh, kind of break it down and with a, a nice compare and contrast here. We've got an empty table. So first of all, the high priest. What did the high priest do? He entered the earthly sanctuary. Okay, as it says, the sanctuary of this creation. He made a provisional atonement with the blood of animals. Now, of course, in Leviticus 16, it doesn't speak of it as a provisional atonement. We see this retrospectively through, through the lens of Jesus and the, it is finished on the cross. Uh, we're able to see this was just a provisional atonement. He sprinkles the earthly altar. And of course, the high priest was the only person to enter the Holy of Holies. This is just Aaron. And how, did you catch how many times it was per year? Once. One time. Okay. One time, once a year on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. I mean, this, this room was severely underutilized. If, you know, if they were doing some kind of uh, audit, I would say, oh, couldn't we do more of this? No. Once a year. That's it. One guy. Compared to our Lord Jesus. He has entered the heavenly sanctuary. So he has not just gone into this temple made by human hands, but he has gone into the throne room of the Father. His atonement, he made the once-for-all atonement with his own blood. And that's a, an important catch word in Hebrews also, um, where it's the, the word, one, there's one Greek word, hapax, which means once-for-all, shows up again and again. Um, he doesn't merely sprinkle the earthly altar, but he sprinkles hearts and consciences. He gets... The inner man is made new. And then finally, he opens the Holy of Holies for all the priesthood. So that now, going along with the, the sermon as well, with the heavens opened, with the veil torn, Christ has given access to all of us. And that's a, a key word that Paul will often use too, talking about the access that we have in Christ to the Father. That all of you have, as those who are the, the priesthood of the baptized, 
You're able to come before the throne of God's grace. It's not just one person once a year, but all of God's people at all times. It's a radical transformation that has been affected by Jesus as our, our greater high priest. So comments or questions about the, the role of the high priest here, Aaron, and how Jesus compares or contrasts with that. We were talking about the veil. Yes. That separates the people yeah. from God. Yes. And you're talking about the tearing of the, uh, the veil mm -hmm. uh, to get grant access. Yes. I, I heard from a, a, a Jewish Christian saying, we look at that slightly differently. Yes, it's giving you access, but uh, one of the things that uh, they did when they were full of sorrow would be to tear their clothing. Yes, that's right. And that, that, and, and that rending is sure. what they focused on instead of the letting you in. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, isn't that interesting how they would see that aspect of it too? The tearing of the garments, right? The rending of your garments. Um, you know, this happens in Jonah when he calls for the repentance. I mean, it happens many times. Um, Jacob, when he believes that Joseph has died. Um, so, huh, that's interesting. I think that that's appropriate as well, right? Um, the, the father in, in his grief, but also um, in joy now uh, opening it anew. Uh, I appreciate this quote from uh, John Klein, A.R. Commentator in Leviticus, where he says, Thus, on this most holy day, the most holy person in Israel performed the most holy rite in the most holy place, with the most holy blood from the most holy animals, so that the sinful Israelites could have safe access to their most holy God. Okay. He is the Lord with the mostest. So uh, it's, a, it's a powerful uh, condensation of what's, what's going on here. All right, so we met, oh, go ahead, Leslie. I had also heard about the tearing of the curtain. Mm -hmm. that it was torn from top to bottom right. where normally, um, I mean, you have curtains hanging in your house, and the second—they might tear from the bottom to the top. But this was from top. Sure. God coming down to us. Sure. To the bottom. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that just further underscores. It's also um, the the curtain was exceptionally thick, so yeah, this isn't right. just you know like tearing paper either. Yeah, but it's more yeah. like you know world's strongest man ripping the phone book in half, right? Um, that's kind of what you've got going on. So everything about that. I think, spoke to that divine providence from it, including from the, the top to the bottom. Yeah, Matt. So I'm wondering, at the Moses-Aaron relationship has always been kind of interesting. Yeah. Kind of Moses was trying to like get somebody else. <laughs> right, exactly. Aaron yeah. started being the more eloquent one. Mm -hmm. Why was it here that Aaron was, is there a reason Aaron was the high priest instead of Moses? So going back even before chapter 16 here, just why would why did God appoint him? I'm trying to think if it ever gives a rationale for it. Yeah, Bob, do you? It might be back in Exodus. Oh, I want to say about chapter 3. I right. think my brain's not working real well. Um, where is Moses is arguing with the Lord. Yeah. And and God says to Moses, you will be God to Aaron, and Aaron will be your spokesperson. Yeah, yeah. So the high priest is of the people. Yes. Moses is an exceptional human being 
right. in that way. Yeah. He's not essentially of the people. He always represents God. He stand, yeah. So Aaron represents the people in the Torah. Uh, that, that seems legit. I think that um, <laughs> Maybe. That, that passes. Well, and there's another thing about Leviticus 16 that accents that as well. And I didn't catch this the first time, but reading, uh, reading notes about it, um, Aaron's garments. So he, this is not his usual uniform. He's wearing his, you know, like how sports teams have their alternate uniform, right? Yeah, well, but it's, it's kind of the opposite of that. So he's not wearing a super fancy one. He's wearing a very simple linen garment. And commentators suggest that this is um, indicative of the fact that Aaron now, at this most holy moment, comes not in his own holiness, but he comes as one of the people, as the, one, as the representative on behalf of all, all of God's people. Um, and, which I think just further emphasizes that, like you said, here's, here's Aaron, he's the high priest, but he is the one who's um, summing up the people into himself. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, back to Hebrews for a minute. Um, when he is, he is offering an apologetic for the superiority of Jesus, he, he tells the people that he is like us in every way except without sin, but he knows our weaknesses, so right. he is a sympathetic high priest. Yes, He's that's right. one of us. That's right. He's one of us. And uh, I, I think that fits with that as well. He has, has, has shared our human flesh. He's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses while also being the go-between, the one who's able to be that bridge uh, between heaven and earth. Let's talk a little bit more. Go ahead, Ann. I want to say something. Uh, I, know that, I know when you have that look. <laughs> is that... Moses and Aaron kind of make me think of Elsa and Anna. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always up for a Frozen reference. <laughs> because Elsa's got, she's, she's bridging the dimensions. She's, she's able to access the transcendence. Right. And Anna is supporting her. Sure, right. She's more of, she's not she holds up the prophet's hands. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> So our Lord Jesus, in the end, is both the new Moses and the new Aaron. Correct. Correct. Yep, prophet, exactly. He's, he's prophet, priest, king. Moses is kind of regarded in some ways as a, a proto-king, um, the leader, but also in that prophetic role. So, yep, Jesus brings all of that together. Mm-hmm. All right, so this yep. day of atonement is obviously one day a year. They also they have all the other sacrifices, too. The yes. Are all their stuff. So... <clears throat> Um, those aren't atoning sacrifices? They're, they are for atonement, and that's said explicitly over and over again. Um, what, the one who is carrying out all those sacrifices over and over, you've got the, the, the priests and the high priests that are, are carrying these out. So what is especially, in addition to kind of covering all of your sacrificial bases, as it were, it's for the high priest himself. So he's got to make the sacrifice for himself and for the holy place. Okay, so there's kind of this pyramid of sacrifices where the other sacrifices stay lower to the bottom, if you will. The Day of Atonement goes right up to the very tippy top to make sure every last person and every last place is covered with the atoning blood. Yeah, yeah Bob. Also the fact that the stuff is put on the altar, which makes the altar holy, yes. and all sacrifices on that altar yep. are holy. So exactly. While it's the tippy top, it's also the foundation of yeah. the whole system. Well put. That's right. So, I mean, we'll, and we'll see this next <clears throat> next week, how there's that attention that's paid to the physical space, that that 
um, cleansing that with, with the blood as well. Yeah. What did... They went before the altar to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I assume that burn incense or... Yeah. Or whatever. And that's what... And they only did it once a year. Uh, Zacharias? Well, so you have the... We have the, the Ark of the, of the Covenant, Covenant yep. and the Holy of Holies, <clears throat> but the altar is not in there. Right, that's out. In, right, so that's not just once a year. That would be... Right, but what, what did they do in there during that one day out of the year that they don't do the rest of the year? Oh, the high priest? Yeah. Here, well, that's, uh, we'll read more about that in the rest, rest of the chapter, too. But yeah, it involves the incense and the sacrifices. But yeah. isn't, the, isn't the altar of incense in the holy place, not in the holy Right. Place? So let, let's um, <laughs> move right along here. So number three. Okay, we, we talked a little bit of this already. Atonement is behind the curtain. And uh, I brought up again <clears throat> this diagram. So this is the, the ground plan of the tabernacle. All right? And just as we all measure things in cubits, we have it helpfully for you here in cubits. Um, remember, a cubit's about a foot and a half. Okay, so we're talking the whole thing is about 150 feet. The width of it, well, the entrance there is about 30, 30 feet. Come in, so you have the, this, in the outer court, you've got the altar of burnt offering, the wash basin. Now you come into the holy place, right? That's this whole square here. Um, and you've got, or no, I'm sorry, this, it's this square. Uh, rectangle here. That's where you would have the altar of incense, the lampstand on the table with the, the bread of the presence. Right. Yeah, ma'am? No, I'm sorry. Counting. I was counting. You're counting? <laughs> Bible map. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Bible map. Um, <clears throat> and then at the very center of it, you have the Holy of Holies, which is um, a cube. It's 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. And at the center of it, the Ark of the Covenant, which is, you know, a, just a box. Okay. With poles. With poles, yeah. I've got a, a picture here in a minute. <clears throat> um, but this is, this is, this is the, the significance. It's in that holy of holies, the one time a year, that one place that's set apart. Nothing else is in there other than the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? There's no cross stitch. There's, no, there's nothing. It's very simple. Just the, the, the Ark of, of the Covenant as uh, the high priest would go in there that one time of the year. Uh, I looked up further because I had heard, and you probably heard this too, this idea about the bell. You heard this? Of the, a bell would be tied around his ankle and, and the rope in case he dropped dead, and then they would know and they could, they could pull him out. I can't find any um, justification for that. That seems like... Um, now, there, is, there are late Jewish documents that refer to this, um, but they're after the time of the New Testament even. And so if this was ever done, it's not, in the, it's not in the Bible itself. And so if that was ever practiced, we don't have a good record of it. So not to be wah, wah. I, I mean, I know I've heard a lot of sermons on it, Bible studies and so forth. But I'm here to tell you, as far as we can tell, that, didn't, that was not an actual thing. I think you just have to listen for the thud. You yeah. know? Like, <laughs> oh, there he goes. But as far as we know, this, that never happened either. That, that they never dropped dead like native would be. Yeah. How long would they technically be in the Holy of Holies? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, we'll, we'll see um, with the section we're going to look at next week. They, it would be three trips in there. Right. Um, you're sprinkling some blood. You're doing some incense. I would think not a long time. Not a long time. And you can only imagine if you're that guy like, all right, I'm going to get in there, get in, get out. 
right? I'm not, I, I don't want to just hang out in here. Again, there's not a lot going on in there. So. Now, they carried blood into it. They yes. didn't actually butcher the animal inside. I don't believe so. Yeah. It seemed they just carried the blood. They carried the blood in, inside. So it's killed there at the, tent, at the entrance of the tent of meeting and then brought inside to be sprinkled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Which is a good argument for sprinkling. There you go. So why, why we sprinkle for baptism? Um, let's just look. We've alluded to it. It's worth uh, looking at this and being reminded of it. Um, the account of the rending of the curtain. So this is Matthew 27. Unlike the bell around the ankle, this is not just some later conjecture. This is in the Bible. <clears throat> Matthew 27. Starting with verse 45, says this. Now, from the sixth hour, okay, and the sixth hour is noon. Um, they starting at from six in the morning. They would um, count it count it that way. Uh, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, from noon to three. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But, but the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. All right, so there you have that rending of the temple from the top to bottom, and I, I, I find that uh, attractive, that interpretation of it, not only being that access, but um, the, the sorrow of the Father, of the, I mean, you think of Jesus as he was entering into Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, how I would gather you together, as a mother hen gathers her chicks, and you would not. Make no mistake, the heart of the father is broken as well with this. Um, I mean, it's, it's a devastating moment, even as ultimately, in the, the mystery and wisdom of God, it's redemptive as well. But it's, it's a powerful thing going on there. And Hebrews, once again, picks up on this as well, makes it even more explicit. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Okay. The, the flesh of Jesus is, in a sense, rent as well. This is also affected, of course, uh, our architecture within churches versus uh, within, from the temple. So you don't have that kind of division. Now, it's interesting um, within churches, you'll have what's called the nave, um, which is kind of the, the main part of the sanctuary. Then you have the chancel. And as in our sanctuary, um, the, the chancel will be set off by a communion rail or something. A but rood. what's that? A rood. R-O-O-D. Oh, R-O-O-D. Yeah. Uh, how rude of you. Um, <laughs> to, to set off that this is the, the space around the altar, okay? The Holy of Holies, if you will. But at the same time, of course, it's uh, able to be entered into not only by the pastor as the presiding priest, but all the, the people of God. And, uh, that, but it, so we, we keep that kind of 
dynamic of carrying forward, recognizing our Old Testament roots, but now the, the way has been opened. I've got a picture here from, uh, this is our, our church in Spokane, where you see this same kind of dynamic. You've got the, the altar there, um, but, and also, oftentimes it'll be on a higher, higher plane, so the idea is that the altar will be, just in church architecture, the, the altar will be at the highest um, spot in, Ours was in the sanctuary. until a few years ago. Well, it still is the highest spot, but it used still, to be on... It used to be, yeah. Yeah, there was more, more steps there. Um, so I, I just... Church architecture always fascinates me, but it, we are carrying forward some of those Old Testament roots, but also they're refashioned in a New Testament faith. Yeah. This is one of the problems I've got with our Eastern Orthodox yeah. brothers and sisters. Yeah, because... Um, I don't, have any of you ever been into an Orthodox church? <laughs> They have what's called the iconostasis, um, the standing icons. And it's uh, images of, of the Lord and Mary and saints and so forth. Um, and they have it as a, a kind of wall. Um, it'll have like the swinging doors like you have at the restaurant or something. It's nicer than that. Um, where only the priest goes back behind there. And the rest of the, the uh, gathered assembly, uh, as far as I understand it, can't even necessarily see what's going on back there. Um, to me, it feels insufficiently New Testament, New Testament, mm -hmm. if I can put it that way. Um, I think that there's some, some, I love the icons, and I think there's a lot of beauty in how um, Orthodox Christians worship. I'll just say I need to understand more about why they do that, because it seems to me to degrade the access that Christ has opened through, through his book. Yeah, Bob. Um, I, I would never want to pick up the Eastern <laughs> Brothers but their emphasis on the transcendence of God sure. oftentimes works against the imminence right. of our Lord Jesus. Right. And, and they have to be kept yeah, 100%, 100%. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's very much uh, a, a paradoxical approach that we have of, of God, that he is fully transcendent, wholly other, as we sing in the Sanctus, holy, 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 but he is also fully imminent, which is to say here, present, tabernacling among us. And, you know, it's, um, it's one of the things I really appreciate about our, our Lutheran tradition is that is keeping, holding that together where there's that, that sense of the transcendent, the sacred of being set apart, while at the same time um, uh, underscoring that imminence and Christ coming to dwell among us, especially in his gifts and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah, I had a crisis of faith once. Um, more than once, but it was a big one because we went to the Holy Land and I could not wait to get to the cave of the Nativity. Yeah. Well, it's in an or the Orthodox uh -huh. on that space. Yeah. And by the time I got to the cave and there was the silver little spot where supposedly the babe was, I was cold. I, I mean, that was just like spiritless to me. I was mm -hmm. shocked by my response. I mean, yeah. it was a crisis. What's going yeah. on? Yeah. Well, you go through that little area, you go out, and right next to the Orthodox piece, I don't know if they're attached or it's adjacent, is a Roman Catholic um, chapel. Mm -hmm. And in the basement of that chapel, by tradition, is where Jerome translated the scriptures. Okay. And I went into that place, and then it was okay. Okay. <laughs> no, but it was fascinating because over on the other side, yeah. God was so far away. Distant, and right. in that cell of Jerome, God came near because he wanted the language. He yes. wanted the Lord's language in the common language. Yeah, and the, the lips of the And that was, that was the only redemptive moment in Bethlehem. Wow. wow. Spoiler alert. I guess I don't need to go now. Thank you for letting me know. Yeah, really. uh, but 
Yeah, that set that should be the preeminent place of God's dwelling among us, and they should have let Martin Luther design that space because he would have <laughs> he he would have done it right. Yes, Sandy. Um, similar to that story, I went to the IMAX to see the tour of Jerusalem. Oh yeah, the IMAX. Yeah, yeah, and I was all ready to be very moved by like the Via Dolorosa and yeah. a lot of other things. But they all seemed so uh, almost theme park yeah. level. And I was I was very disappointed. Yeah. And then the camera swooped down over the River Jordan hmm. and I just burst into Oh yeah. I was thinking of, of Christ's baptism right. and all the things that happened there, but it was so simple. Yes, they couldn't and, I, and they couldn't there were no rides on the River Jordan or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Splash Mountain. Splash Mountain. <laughs> yeah. Sprinkle Mountain. Sprinkle uh, <laughs> No, but yeah, it's, it, it's inevitable, right? I mean, this is what, this is what we do. It's the message of Charlie Brown, right? Um, does anybody know? Um, but uh, I, just that simplicity of it, as you said, and the place of the translation of the, the scriptures. So that's a relief to know that it's still possible to see some of that, that beauty, the simplicity of it. Okay, a couple other points to draw just about these first few verses. Atonement centers in what's called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. There's a lot here. Um, you, back in Leviticus 16. Now. Um, it's, don't think of a chair, okay? So this is not the, the mercy chair, or the, like an air chair or something like that. Um, they call, it was the, think of it this way, it's the seat of mercy. This, this is the, the center place of forgiveness and atonement. Like the, the county seat. Like the county seat. Good. That's right. Um, what, what, there used to be a store. What was the store called instead of the county seat? It was Macy's? No, no, it had seats in it. <laughs> yeah, Macy's. Uh, that's another store. Um, anyway, the mercy seat, it, 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 they call it that. The Hebrew word for it is kaporeth from which we get um, Kippur, okay? So it's related to the same word for atonement. So the atonement seat. Uh, but the Greek term is hilasterion, okay? Sounds like hilarity. Uh, there's nothing hilarious about this. Hilariously good news, I guess you might say. The hilasterion, the hilasterion. Now, let me show you this um, art, artistic depiction. This is after Indiana Jones recovered it for us, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, but this is, this is what it would have looked like from the descriptions that we have in the scriptures, okay? Uh, overlaid with gold, and on top of it, this would be the mercy seat, okay? Right here. Um, you have the two cherubim with their wings pointing forward like that, okay? Uh, this is why in, throughout the Psalms especially, you'll, talk about, you'll hear how there is uh, mercy under the shadow of your wings, okay? Um, it's uh, an allusion to the mercy seat. Of this place where literally you'd know God's forgiveness and his mercy in the shadow of those um, cherubic wings. The place where forgiveness happens. That locatedness of God's forgiveness. This is how it would be depicted. And that's the particular spot. The mercy seat, the kippureth, or the hilasterion. Now there's a neat place where Paul um, connects this. Um, although it's, it's lost in a lot of our translations. It's in Romans chapter 3. So turn there to Romans 3. Okay, so in Romans 3, 
uh, verses 21 and following. Great, great atonement passage. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a what? What do your translations have? Propitiation. Okay, propitiation. Any other translations out there? Got a lot of ESV out here. I think um, NIV might say the atoning sacrifice. Um, yeah, so it's hilasterion, okay? Um, who God put forward as a hilasterion by his blood to be received by faith. So Jesus now is that seat of mercy and forgiveness. Paul's saying that Christ is the, the center point, the location of the atoning work of God. He is the kippereth. He is the one in whom all those things then come together. As Paul says elsewhere in, in Colossians uh, or Ephesians, Ephesians 2, that he himself is our peace. He is our shalom. He is our kippereth. He is the mercy seat in whom and through whom then we have that, that atonement, that one being brought back together uh, between God and man. Doesn't 1 John use the same? He is our hillist. Exactly, yeah. So go to First uh, John 2. Uh, I believe that's right. First John. Do, do, do. Yeah, so not John's almost, gospel, but 1 John. Almost the revelation. Well, and this, so this is an interesting kind of um, emendation or, or further extension of what Paul says here. First uh, John 2, verse 1. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the, yeah, the hilasterion for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And this isn't saying that, um, you know, God just is forgiving everybody and faith doesn't matter and so forth, but it's saying that now that hilasterion was in the Old Testament, the Kippareth was essentially just for the Jews, right? But that now this is another way of what John says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, okay? So these are important texts to remember um, when people make the cases they sometimes do that while the um, forgiving or toning work of God, this, this is actually a doctrine within some strains of Christianity called the limited atonement. The limited atonement, which to me, as we read these texts, is inherently an oxymoron. Okay? Atonement is not atonement if it is not un unlimited and universal for, for the whole world. Not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone is going to, so to speak, tap into it by faith. But it is, in principle, there for all people. Right? His blood is shed and covers all people for those who will, who will trust in it and receive it. So that's uh, powerful, powerful language, and I think another beautiful connection. Surprisingly, to my knowledge, Hebrews does not use Elisterion anywhere, uh, which I would have thought that'd be a slam dunk with all the connections that you have. But I don't know. I guess maybe he only could have so many words in there. So, um, All right. Oh, well, one other thing. This is another neat, neat connection. This is somewhat conjecture, but I, uh, uh, it's suggestive to me. Back to the, um, the mercy seat. Okay, and you looked at that picture of it there, of the cherubim on top of it. 
Now listen to this. In John's account of the resurrection and his depiction of when Mary comes to the empty tomb, John 20, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Okay? So picture the scene. There are the, the garments that have been gathered. Now here is the place where Christ was laid, and the two angels are right there. And wait, I've, I've got the picture here for you. Look, we got a photo. Uh, um, but I don't know. I can't say for sure that that's what John is, is conveying to us. Maybe he didn't even know that he was doing it. Um, but I think that that's what's happening here. Christ as the Hillisterion. Here is the new mercy seat. Here are the, the, the uh, angels of God positioning themselves at that spot, even as they used to over the Ark of the Covenant. Powerful, powerful stuff. Last question, last thought um, as, we, as we wrap up. Why would God choose to locate his forgiveness so specifically? I mean, it's like this one little spot right here, this little box. What, what do you think is the benefit for having that kind of specificity when it comes to the location of forgiveness? And you can't the same question we asked, why did God locate forgiveness in his son? Sure, okay, yeah. You, you could just say your sins are forgiven, right? I mean, theoretically, right, like God, right. you would want to do So like, why, yeah, why does why, kind of, What's the specific... <coughs> yeah, what's that? the... Right. So he could find it. So he could find it. So we could find it. We're, right? we're physical people. We sure. need to find a specific point for things. Yeah. Always. Yeah. It's concrete. It's concrete. The method Lochi. The method Oh, now you're speaking Whoa. my language. The method of <laughs> places. The memory <laughs> palace. The soup What's that? The the method of lochi, the lo method places. Sounds like a delicious dessert. It is, yes. <laughs> God is a locating God. He wants to be known. He wants to be known not just in general. We see him in creation. It's, it's very beautiful. I was at a, a store here um, nearby recently, and they make a big deal of their faith basis. They've got products that you know reference Bible verses, and it's all over the stuff. So I asked them a natural question. Where do you guys go to church? Oh, we don't go to church. Mm. You know, we we just kind of we like to just stay home. We read our Bible and this sort of thing. And I was Elizabeth, like, honey, I'm coming to join you. Yeah. <laughs> just when I hear stuff, but it's so common, right? It's one thing for those who don't believe. Of course, you wouldn't expect, it. but for believers, ah, I don't need to. But to think, no, God has, has located himself in his word, of course, yes, but also in his, in his sacrament, in the, the body of believers. He's a located God. We don't want to limit him to that, right? He fills all things, but he wants to be known for our sake so that we can access him, so that we can have that assurance, that certainty that when I, re when I receive these gifts, when I meet him in person, then I know that, I'm going, that I, I have that forgiveness. I have that, have that atonement. So we see this pattern, Old Testament, New Testament. This continues to be the way that God works. Located side of it. All right, we've just scratched the surface here. Go ahead, Hans. Location. You have a tent. Yeah. And it's right. a mobile location. Right, that's right. It's, it's going to go around. That's a good point. Uh, 
Would I, yeah, I mean, which again underscores that, that side of it that he fills all things. He can meet you any place, right? It's not that he can only meet you at uh, 17 191 Third Street, but he does want to be known at in that Very way. Yeah. The whole point of that mobile tent, because we're always thinking of it as the wilderness, that was all owned by some king, some property. God's a missionary God. God yeah. was on the move, and wherever he was, yes. people were meeting Yahweh. Yeah. Who told Rahab about the great things of God? Right. She's a believer by yeah. the time the spies reach her. So yes, yes. It's fascinating. He's always locatable. He's always on the move. He's always locatable. He's always on the move. Well put. Real quick, Garrison Keeler told a story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, this was That's a be quick, story though. about his goddaughter on her confirmation day. Hmm. And he was late, as you know, as his story goes. And um, it's two scenes. He gets late, and he has to go to the bathroom, so he's out in the woods taking, <laughs> using the restroom. <laughs> <laughs> the Lord's restroom. Meanwhile, yeah. she's at home, confirmed, and there's a cake with her Bible verse on it, lots of coffee. And she's having a crisis of doubt whether mm. she believes any of it. Mm. Finally, she leaves the party and starts walking out in the woods and happens to meet her godfather <laughs> and just pours her heart out to him about, about whether she believes or not. And he takes her by the hand and they walk and they go into the sanctuary where she was confirmed. And he walks down to the baptismal font mm. and he says, here, mm. this is where God chose you. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That would have worked in the sermon today. Said, but that's, yeah. but it's, that's it's a powerful story. That's uh, that's exactly right. Um, and the fact that he has located himself in that spot. I mean, I, I it's such a, a gift. Uh, again, to go back to baptism too. God locating himself there. You can have pictures of your baptism, right? And say, here's God claiming me, calling me, saying, you are mine, right there. That's how he wants to work. He doesn't want us to live in perpetual doubt and uncertainty about whether or not we are his children. He wants to make it unmistakable so that, confident of our identity in him, we're able to go out on the move with our missionary God. So, all right, we didn't even get into yet the scapegoat, Zazel, all this stuff, so we'll continue that next week. See you then. Thanks very much.